Hi, welcome to Trained. At Nike, we believe that greatness isn't born, it's trained. And that means more than just a workout. Each episode, we'll bring you conversations with leading experts in what we call the five facets of fitness. Training, recovery, nutrition, mindset, and sleep. I'm Ryan Flaherty, Senior Director of Performance at Nike. I train some of the world's best athletes, like Saquon Barkley, Russell Wilson, and Marcus Mariota. Today, we're talking about how creating healthy relationships with food is a foundational habit to achieving your goals. You're listening to Trained, presented by Nike. Initially, it was all about sports and performance. That was all I wanted to evaluate. But after I had the experience of that very first self-experiment, I realized that my emotional relationship with food was tied into my diet. And that's where that focus on changing habits and changing that emotional relationship with food came from. That's Melissa Hartwig Urban. She's the CEO and co-creator of the well-known food plan Whole30 and author of several books, including It Starts With Food, Whole30, The Whole30 Cookbook, and Food Freedom Forever. While the Whole30 program started as a way for Melissa to experiment with her own nutrition, it has become more than just an elimination diet. Melissa has built a community of people who want to improve their relationships with food and create healthier habits that go way beyond nutrition. Melissa is a champion of real food, food that's not processed, and food that you can name and visualize. The Whole30 plan is built around these types of foods vegetables, healthy fats, foods without processed or added sugar. But a big part of Whole30 isn't just eating these real foods. It's about cooking with them. The act of cooking and its role in nutrition is something that's easy to get away from. When you take the time to cook your meals, you actually see what goes into your food. You get to decide what you put into your body. You have to think about the ingredients you're using. And the best part? Cooking teaches you to be present and in the moment. I work with a sports psychologist who trains a lot of elite athletes. And when he starts working with a new athlete, the very first thing he does is invite them over for dinner. When they get there, the meal's not actually done yet. He's still in the middle of cooking it. And he asks the athletes to join him, to actually help him cook whatever they're about to eat. It's his way of showing them how he wants them to be in all areas of their life. When you're cooking, you have to be focused on what you're doing in that moment. You're forced to be where your feet are. And the process of cooking educates you about nutrition and other parts of your life. You pay attention to the quality and types of ingredients in your food. Foods like pasta sauce that you might get in a jar or when you're out to dinner can have a lot of hidden and added sugar. But when you make it yourself, that's all up to you. There are so many distractions in our lives today, and it can be hard to draw boundaries. But cooking for yourself and for others helps everyone understand the importance of real food. If you can make time cooking together as a family, You're recharging and focusing on relationships at the same time. And if you live alone, it can be time to really do something just for yourself. Melissa knows that it's not always easy to accomplish goals or stick to a program without a community. But through her work with Whole30, she has taught so many people how to build a support system in order to stay on track. Her ultimate pitch in Whole30 is just try it. And she brings that same attitude towards training. Melissa will tell us about how her experiences with different diets and training led her to create Whole30 and about the importance of creating healthy relationships around food. So now let's get to the interview.
thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Ryan. I've been looking forward to it. I want to just jump in real quick into your background a little bit. Can you just tell us a little bit about you and and how you got to this point with Whole30? Sure. My background is in fitness. I started with CrossFit back in about 2006. I owned a CrossFit affiliate back east for a little while. I'm an RKC certified kettlebell instructor, and I used to travel with CrossFit kettlebell certs coaching throughout New England. So that's kind of how I came into nutrition was by way of fitness. I was doing some kind of consulting work, and I realized that the more I talked to my clients about nutrition, the fitter they were getting. And that really is what led to the Whole30 back in 2009, this idea of wondering if I could tinker with my own nutrition and tighten it up just enough based on current research to see an improvement in my athletic performance and my recovery. So in 2009, after a really difficult Olympic lifting session at a CrossFit gym, you know, we had just gone to a nutrition seminar talking about some of the pro-inflammatory foods that might be in a normal everyday, even like healthy diet. And the idea was, what if we stripped these foods from our diet for 30 days straight, kind of like an elimination concept? I wonder if I could see an improvement in my performance and in my recovery. I thought all, you know, all my other life factors were pretty fine. I didn't have any weight to lose. I felt like I, you know, was using food as fuel. My energy was good. My sleep was fine. I really thought about it just in terms of performance and recovery. So I did this 30-day experiment. And not only did my performance and recovery improve dramatically, but all of these like extra bonuses came through. So my energy improved. I no longer had this 2 p.m. head on desk slump. My sleep improved tremendously. Where I was sleeping through the night, I was waking up refreshed. I didn't need to hit snooze. My mood improved. I was just happier and more outgoing. And on top of that, this experiment helped me identify all the ways that I was using food in a dysfunctional fashion, things I never would have thought about. Food as reward, food as punishment, food to self-soothe or relieve anxiety or kind of show myself love. And it was really powerful for me. That was a really powerful, transformative experience. So I decided to share about the experience on my CrossFit training blog And that was really the birth of the Whole30, was writing about this self-experiment that was so profoundly transformational. So is that how people initially found you, was through this blog? Yeah, I had gained some following through the CrossFit message boards, just because I was posting and writing about my training and just life stuff in general. So I posted on this training blog I had, which was called Urban Gets Diesel, right? And um, (laughs) I was like, look, I did this 30-day experiment. Here's the protocol I followed. Here's what I got from it. Would anyone want to try it? And a few hundred people on my blog were like, yeah, I I would try that. Sure, that sounds fun. So I guided people through it in the comments section in a very rudimentary way in July 2009. And that was like the first group Whole30. Wow. And so for people listening who may not know what exactly what Whole30 is, can you just give us the the framework? Yes. So Whole30 is not a diet and it's not even about weight loss. The way I describe it is that Whole30 is like pushing the reset button with your health, your habits and your relationship with food. So the premise is that there may be some foods in your diet right now, even the healthy stuff, that may be having a negative impact on how you look, how you feel, your performance in the gym, your quality of life, in ways that you wouldn't even associate with your diet. So what we do on the Whole30 is we take these foods out for 30 days, foods that may be having a negative impact on your cravings, your blood sugar regulation and hormones, your digestion, your immune system, pull them out for 30 days, like an elimination protocol and see what happens. Note the changes, what improves energy, sleep, mood, attention span, performance, and recovery. 
you know, aches and pains, joint swelling, um, migraines, asthma, acne, allergies, all of these things can be negatively impacted by stuff in your diet. At the end of the 30 days, you then reintroduce those foods one at a time very carefully and systematically like an experiment and see what changes. So if during the whole 30, you know, that like knee, that old like football knee was mm-hmm. acting up. And as soon as you began the whole 30, it started getting better and you could move more freely and you had less inflammation. And then you reintroduce something and all of a sudden that inflammation is back. It gives you a very specific, very targeted to you piece of information about how that food reacts in your body. And then you take what you've learned during this experiment and use it to create the perfect sustainable diet for you. Why do you think that mindset of this is an experiment is so effective? I think it's effective for a couple of reasons. One, we take the morality out of food. We are not eliminating any food because it's bad. We're not saying foods are good or bad or by association that you're good or bad when you eat them. We're just saying these foods are very commonly problematic to varying degrees across a broad range of people, according to the literature and our clinical experience, and they're unknown. They're not good. They're not bad. They're just unknown. Mm -hmm. And all you're going to do is test them out. And I think that gives people this real sense of freedom when they go to create the perfect diet for them, because the perfect diet for them might include beer or pizza or wine or you know, gluten, which is kind of like the devil in some circles right now, it it might. And so taking that morality out of it, I think, is very helpful. Also, I think it just gives people a framework. Every dietitian and nutritionist out there says there is no one size fits all. You have to figure out what works for you. And everybody says, cool, that makes so much sense. How do I figure that out? And Whole30 provides a framework for how. Yeah. Why 30 days? Why'd you pick 30 days? 30 days is sort of a compromise between accessibility and the science. So if you look at habit research typically done with uh, addictive behaviors like smoking, it takes on average 66 days for a new habit to be encoded. But that number of days really varies widely depending on how emotionally connected you are to the habit. So if you want to just say start drinking a glass of water every morning when you wake up, It might only take six or seven days of that in a row before that's become habitual. Something like quitting smoking can take as long as like eight months to really stick. Mm -hmm. So 30 days is a really nice compromise in that by the time you're done with your 30-day elimination and your at least 10-day reintroduction, you're most of the way there towards solidifying new healthy habits. But 30 days feels doable. You know, people look at the program and they say, well, that looks kind of tough. You're giving up a lot, but I can do anything for 30 days. And you do see dramatic improvements in so many body systems in such a short period of time. A lot of times I think a lot of diets, they're kind of that always on, never ending lifestyle shift, which sometimes can be really difficult for people. Do you find that the removal of single foods, things like dairy from the diet, do you think once they get through the 30 days, is it something that you see a lot of people in your community start to just realize and just leave out completely, you know, recognizing how much better they feel afterwards? I think that's a very common experience. And whether it's physiological or psychological or a combination of both, it kind of varies from person to person. But I think we have these emotional attachments to food that supersede our physiological need for them. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, when you come into the program and say, I can't imagine life without this food, that's the first food I would ask you to like evaluate and assess and do some like pretty brutal introspection on your relationship with that food. So people do the 30 days, you know, they have cravings for a little while. Maybe they have this habit response where it's like, man, what do I do after dinner now when I used to go prowl through the pantry 
every night at 9 p.m., but you learn new behaviors. You learn new ways to self-soothe and relieve anxiety and cope. You learn new ways to connect with people socially. It doesn't have to be over a drink. It doesn't really matter what you have in your glass to have that connection. And I think those are really powerful experiences that you don't find with these quick fix weight loss diet plans. Right. So at the end of the 30 days, yeah, I do think a lot of people notice such profound physical transformations, but they also have such a sense of self-confidence from completing this thing that they thought was going to be so challenging. And then they've learned new habits and they forged a new emotional relationship with food such that going back to those old habits, there isn't as strong a pull. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a lot more that happens psychologically for you, that even subconsciously, that you don't realize when you stick to a time-bound goal like this. So that's huge. How did you come up with this? What diets were you trying prior to starting Whole30 or doing Whole30 for yourself that first time? Yeah. So, you know, my journey started when I began exercising and really getting into fitness. I did Body for Life for a while. Remember that oh, yeah. program? Yep. Um, I did that way back in the day. I switched Was over. Was that the you held the newspaper up and you like, yeah. you did the before and after? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> but listen, it gave me the ability to read a label and like made me pay attention to what I ate. Melissa, when you designed the Whole30, how much did you take into account longevity and health? Well, for me, initially, it was all about sports and performance. That was all I wanted to evaluate. I think in the early days, because we were so connected to the CrossFit community, we had a really strong focus on performance and recovery because that's what we cared about and that's what CrossFitters cared about. But as Mm -hmm. the program grew and spread and as our audience started to broaden and widen and change, far more people started coming into it saying, I'm not exercising at all. I just want to see if I can feel better. I want to play with my grandkids. I want to walk more freely. I want to have more energy. I want to, you know, uh, have more focus at work. What do you think from the things you've read or the things you've heard are some of the biggest misconceptions you hear about Whole30, positive or negative? Um, I hear a few. I hear a few in the media. <laughs> so I think one of the biggest misconceptions I hear people, critics will say, it's just not sustainable. And I'm like, well, it's not meant to be. It's not the whole 365. We're not saying you have to eliminate all of these foods forever. Again, because we're not saying these foods are necessarily Mm -hmm. bad, right? It's a 30-day short-term dietary experiment. So no, it's not sustainable. I don't want it to be sustainable. I don't want you eating according to my rules forever. I want you to take the structure that we've come up with and use it to do your own self-experiment and then create your own perfect diet long-term. I sometimes hear the idea that you're missing out on micronutrition by eliminating things like grains and legumes. But, you know, I've done studies with registered dietitians comparing the perfect kind of standard American diet, according to the USDA, and a Whole30 diet, where you're replacing for 30 days grains and legumes with vegetables and fruit. And according to all of my calculations, you're getting more fiber, more micronutrition, less sodium, less added sugar. So maybe a registered dietitian would say something like, you know, you're short on calcium because you're not doing dairy. And that might be true, but you can get calcium from things like leafy greens and bone broth. And calcium isn't the only factor involved in bone density and strength. We have a big issue in the United States with obesity, chronic inflammation, chronic disease. Where do you think we can make the biggest step? How can we do a better job of helping people grow up with a better view and relationship with food? It's such a big question. And I think there are so many factors that go into it. I think that if there's one thing that we can do as a society, but especially as parents, because I have a six-year-old, if there's one thing we can do to instill better food habits with our kids and a better sense of connection, 
stress reduction, all of the factors that go into what may be potentially an unhealthy lifestyle later. It's to to cook real food and sit around the table together as a family and eat it. Hmm. This idea of like returning to the table. I think that makes such an impact on family connections. It makes an impact on teaching kids about food and modeling good behavior around food, you know, such that everyone's not eating their individual microwave dinner in front of the TV or in front of the computer or in front of a phone. Um, I think it gets kids involved in the food process early. So my son helps me pick out what's for dinner and he helps with the prep and he helps with the cooking and loves it. And I think, you know, that all of that, I think, can go a very long way towards establishing a healthier relationship and healthier conversations around food from a very young age. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Melissa will tell us about how meditation has enhanced her time in the gym and how she has transformed her training routine to figure out what's best for her. Stick around. We'll be right back. If you're a trainer, join a community of trainers looking to make fitness better for everyone. Learn from leading experts in training, recovery, mindset, nutrition, and sleep and get an exclusive 30% discount on Nike gear. Apply at nike.com slash ntcpro. To feed a family of five at a fast food restaurant would cost you probably $30 to $40. Feeding a family of five going to Whole Foods will cost you $150, most likely per meal. So it's really expensive. Do you have any tips for people who, you know, maybe on a budget and, and can't afford to buy organic and make these huge meals? Do you, what advice do you give to people who are on a budget? This is a huge area for us. Accessibility is a huge effort right now for us. We want to make sure that the Whole30 is available to everyone who wants to try it. We even have some Whole30 certified coaches who are talking about how to do the Whole30 on WIC and SNAP and other government funding programs. You know, go to your local grocery store. Find out when the produce is delivered. Shop seasonally when things are less expensive. Use coupons. Frozen vegetables, fantastic deal. Same thing with frozen seafood. Um, Ground beef and ground meat goes a very long way versus really high-end cuts of steak. You can shop at your local farmer's market. Sign up for a, a CSA, a meat CSA, or a vegetable CSA. So you're getting stuff that's seasonal, but it's also very cost effective. So there are a lot of ways that you can do it on a budget. You can do it with limited budget. I think it's about letting good enough be good enough, keeping it simple, you know, just having really good fresh ingredients, maybe whipping together a dressing or a sauce for variety or using herbs and spices and just keeping it very, very simple. And, you know, stocking your pantry with some of the more expensive kind of flavoring options or oils as you can. Yeah. And you you bring up something that I want to make sure we define for people, which is a CSA. So a CSA means it's community supported agriculture. So a lot of local farms will have CSAs that you can sign up for. You can split it with families. You can split it among state families. But whatever is in harvest or in season at that point gets delivered to you straight from the farms. One question I was going to ask you is what in the perfect world would you recommend to somebody who just has completed Whole30 for the first time? What would be the perfect kind of transition for them to carry on to make it more of a lifestyle? Genius. I love that question. So the first thing I would say is don't blow off reintroduction. You're going to want to because you've just eliminated all of these foods you love for 30 days. And you're going to have in your brain this idea of like, well, I've eliminated them and I feel really, really good. And, you know, now I'm sure I can add them back in like I used to and somehow remain on this elevated plane of like energy and sleep. 
If you skip reintroduction, you miss half of the learning experience of the Whole30. You've eliminated and you've had that experience, but until you reintroduce, you won't know what to blame for what if negative effects start creeping back Mm -hmm. in. So we have a full reintroduction schedule outlined day by day with examples of things you can eat and things you can reintroduce. Make sure you follow that. All right, Melissa, you've mentioned this idea of real food. What does it mean to cook and eat real food? So I think real food can have a lot of different definitions. It kind of depends on who you ask. But it's basically the stuff that doesn't come in a package and it doesn't need a label. So it's the, you know, steak you buy at your local butcher. It's the spinach. It's the grapes. It's the broccoli. It's the nuts and seeds. And, you know, I think there's been this backlash against, quote, processed foods. But I do want to take kind of context into account here. Like not all processed foods are bad. Technically, extra virgin olive oil is processed. Technically, 100% organic applesauce is processed. Ground meat is processed. So it's not a backlash against all processed foods. It's just basically keeping things, you know, make sure that the ingredient list is stuff that you can pronounce and stuff that you recognize. And, (laughs) you know, ideally shopping the perimeter of the grocery store. It really can be as simple as that. So you mentioned one of the keys to eating well is reading labels. What's your advice on how to read labels? Reading labels can be really tricky. I think a couple things to remember, things like salad dressings or ketchups can have like really long list of ingredients. Long list may not be bad. Maybe it just has a whole lot of herbs and spices and and you recognize things like garlic powder and onion powder and that's totally fine. So making sure you're reading all of the ingredients. I actually read the ingredients before I look at the nutrition factors. The next thing about label reading is that Google is your friend. So some things sound really scary, like ascorbic acid. But if you looked it up, it's just vitamin C. Okay, I'm going to shift gears for a second. I want to get it back to you. What does your recovery routine look like? I have a pretty robust recovery routine in that, you know, I make sure I never train beyond my capacity to recover. I am like rabid about my sleep. I sleep eight and a half to nine hours a night. I go to bed nice and early. I wake up at the same time every morning without an alarm. I don't hit snooze. I don't like I don't drink. I don't need caffeine in the morning. I just go. So I'm very, very particular about my sleep routine. I don't think we listen to our bodies enough. And I think sometimes we hear them and we override it either because we're stuck in this stress cycle, you know, because of the way our lifestyle is arranged that we feel like we always have to do more and always have to push harder and we're not showing ourselves, you know, a lot of kindness and consideration. I know that was kind of the cycle I was stuck in for a really long time where like I was just on overdrive in every area of my life and it was like hustle 24/7, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I couldn't feel more differently about that now. <laughs> now I'm, you know, preaching taking yeah. naps and putting sleep first and being kind to yourself and showing yourself grace. I also have a lot more fun in the gym. You know, I don't go in with a plan. Occasionally I'll have a goal. Last year I decided on my birthday that I wanted 10 dead hang pull-ups. So I worked for a couple months, knocked him out on my birthday and was like, cool. And then I don't think I had another goal for like maybe another six months. Like occasionally I'll (laughs) throw them in, but I'm having a lot of fun with my training. I love going to the gym every morning. I spend a lot of time there. If I don't feel like going to the gym, I'm outside hiking on the mountains. Like I practice self-care on a pretty regular basis. I have a really solid meditation practice. I meditate after my training session at the gym every single time I train. I'm into like massage and acupuncture and cupping and 
um, other forms of self-care. I, you know, go to psychotherapy as often as I need it and talk about my feelings. So that's really important. I make sure that, you know, I stretch and, and do my mobility practices every single day. Um, when I have a problem, I make sure I'm connecting with people in real life and talking about it and, and kind of making sure that I'm getting it out in the open and that I'm feeling heard. So I think we often think of recovery as like, am I stretching? Am I foam rolling? Am I taking my supplements? But I think recovery goes way beyond that. And it's really about like how well are you nurturing yourself outside of your training such that you have the capacity to go back into the gym the next day or the day after that and continue to like crush it. Yeah. That's one thing I think a lot of people, yeah, they spend too much time thinking about active recovery and not enough about passive. And I think there's a lot of different ways to recover outside of just kind of the most common ways of foam rolling and cold tubs and hot tubs. I think there's your mind and your mental recovery is the most important thing. So that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. I hear people all the time who are like, oh, you know, I went to bed so late last night, but I still made myself get up at 4 a.m. for my workout. And I'm like, dude, go back to sleep. Like you're going to do your body so much better getting that extra two hours of sleep than you are like waking up early and trying to kill it at the gym. So yeah. Yeah. yeah that whole sleep thing is, yeah, that whole thing about being tough and working hard and not sleeping is just the craziest thing ever. Agreed. Okay. You just talked about meditating in the gym after you work out. Can you just tell us about how you started doing that and why that works for you? I do. It has been such a game changer. So my meditation routine was actually inspired by a friend of mine almost a year ago. He had this meditation practice where after his workouts, he would sit like in a, you know, in kind of in the middle of the gym, not in people's way, but he would just plop down after his workout and he would go through this four part meditation process. And I had been trying to get into a regular habit with meditating. I tried it in the morning. I tried it at night and I could never make it consistent. And I really wanted to because I really believed in the benefits of it. And we went through a workout together like we always do. And then he was like, "Okay, let's meditate. And he sat right down and I was like, "Okay." And I sat down next to him and he guided me through this four part process. I took it back to Salt Lake City with me and I began doing it after every single workout. I finished my workout. I sit down in the gym and it's like I posted a video on Instagram not that long ago. I'm not in the middle of the gym, but I'm in the middle of the gym. People are walking around (laughs) me and working around me and I just sit and meditate. And it is such a game changer for my state of mind, for my presence. It allows me to set intention for the day. I feel like that's where I get to connect with God and like connect with my spirituality. And because I tack it on to a habit that's already existing, going to the gym every morning, it's something that has now become a habit for me. And I just absolutely love the process. I love it. Yeah. What about sitting in the middle of the gym? Is What is that doing? Well, so it's very hard for me just to like sit and decide to be present and silent and think about things I'm grateful for. It's almost like by going to the gym first and going through my workout, I'm like kind of pitching a temper tantrum. I'm getting all the like stress and agitation and the worries of my, you know, night and like whatever I have coming up. I get that out in my workout. I'm, you know, deadlifting and pull-ups and swinging a kettlebell and whatever. And then by physically exhausting myself, I'm then able to sit after that workout and really drop into this place of like gratitude and self-reflection. So getting the physical out first, I think, has been really monumental for me. Doing it in the gym, you know, and again, I'm not doing it in such a conspicuous way. I'm not like sitting down on someone's platform. But doing it in the gym has really allowed me to to claim space for myself, right? To allow myself the self-care to say I am worthy of this like three-foot square section in the gym where I can just sit and be present. And I'm just as worthy of this space as anyone else in this gym. It allows me to 
I think, train myself to stay present despite all of the stuff going on around me, right? Barbells dropping and trainers calling instructions and music blasting. And then the last part of the meditation, you know, you're directed to just be present and listening to the sounds around you. And I find the sounds of my gym to be really beautiful. Like people are in there connecting and making themselves healthier and working harder. And I I really like that experience of just sitting and listening. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that a lot. Okay, last question I have for you is how would you convince someone that what you eat really does affect your recovery? Oh, boy. You know, I could spout off the science. I could talk about chronic systemic inflammation. I could talk about how, you know, you don't get fitter when you're training. You get fitter when you're recovering from training. I I could talk about all of that stuff. But the best way for you to see that for yourself is just try it. You know, whatever argument appeals to you, whether you're a questioner and I can give you the science, whether you're an obliger and, you know, you decide to do this experiment with your friend, whether you're a rebel and I say to you, look, don't take my word for it, like prove it for yourself. The best thing you can do to discover the impact of food on your training and more important, your recovery is to try it. Pull out the potentially inflammatory foods for a set period of time add them back in and see what changes in the gym. That's like the best way for you to prove it to yourself. Melissa, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. I think everyone that listens is going to get a ton out of this. So I really, really thank you for taking the time and uh, thanks for coming on. I hope so, Ryan. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. Melissa has a lot to say about all of the facets of fitness. But here's one thing from our conversation that really stuck out to me. A lot of times when you bring up nutrition, people will say they can't commit for any number of reasons. But if you press further, you'll find that they haven't tried it. But as Melissa says, anyone can do anything for 30 days. So if there's something you've been meaning to do but haven't, just start. 30 days is not that long. At the start of this season of Trained, we talked about setting New Year's goals and how to make them stick. Now's a great time to check in with yourself and try something new. Commit to a time period. It could be 30 days, two weeks, even a week. And know that your goal doesn't have to last forever. It's okay to start small. Because when you begin to make healthy, sustainable changes in your life, that's the best route to progress. Trained is produced by Nike Training Club. If you're looking to take your training routine to the next level, check out the Nike Training Club app. In it, you'll find holistic guidance and free workouts designed by Nike experts. It's a great way to stick with your training goals, no matter how much time you have, where you are, or what's going on in your life. Go check it out. That's Nike Training Club app, available in both Android and iOS. That's the end of our second season of Train. We'll be back soon with more conversations with the world's top athletes and fitness experts. In the meantime, you can check out some of our previous episodes with some of the best minds in training like Michael B. Jordan, Dr. Matthew Walker, and Sarah Sigmund's daughter. Thank you for listening. If you like what you just heard, help us spread the word by rating and reviewing the show. That way we can keep making great episodes for you to listen to. And be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Train. Talk to you soon. Consult your doctor before engaging in an exercise program of any kind, especially if you have a medical condition. Use good judgment and common sense about your own fitness level and ability when engaging in a training program. If something doesn't feel right, stop immediately and seek medical attention as necessary.